Hey, everybody. Welcome to Listen Money Matters. Plant the seeds early and save the trees because money really does grow on trees. My name is Matt, and I'm here as always with Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking? Ah, uh, great, man. And I'm polishing off another blue moon because I just have <laughs> quite a lot of blue moon. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Lame. Oh, man. <laughs> God. The the Miller Coors. Uh, is that what up. you have, dude? What? Oh, oh I thought because I, I know no, you had the beer. No, I, come on, no. I, but no. It's, this is not your beer, because you're recording from. I'm recording from my parents' basement. <laughs> That's true, because uh, my internet at my house has crapped out. My brother is working on it uh, feverishly to get it up and running. I don't know why. Just uh, whatever. A lot of technical difficulties today, but guess what? We're <sighs> up. We're running. We're live. We're recording. And um, so, Blue Moon for you. I am drinking a Yard's Extra Special Ale, an ESA. And I am very... Yard's has a special place in my heart because it's Philadelphia. uh, It's a Philadelphia beer brewery. And I've been there multiple times. The best beer I've ever had was at Yard's, which was a... Ooh, it was like a IPA, but it was aged in a Woodford Reserve uh, bourbon barrel, which is my favorite... Uh, my and it was named bourbon. after a president or something, wasn't it? Uh, they have a series named after. Yeah, they have a um, a revolutionary series. Uh, they have a Ben Franklin, a Thomas Jefferson, and a George Washington beer. Um, but this one is not one of those. And my favorite of those is Ben Franklin, even though Travis from uh, Extra Pack of Peanuts uh, doesn't like the Ben Franklin one, even though Ben Franklin's like his favorite, you know, historical figure. But I think. The Ben Franklin one's excellent. It's made with spruce. So, so I just have to ask one more question. Yeah, of course. Uh, because you're in Philly, does yes. that mean you have to have a famous historical person? Like, is that like a Philly thing? Because you know, it actually might be. Because I'm, I've never heard anyone. No one has ever asked me, nor have I asked. Hey, what's your favorite person? Like, favorite famous person? You know, it's not famous like a thing. historical. You, so you don't have one? No, I never. I would definitely. Of mine's definitely Ben Franklin. I mean, if you, if somebody asked me on the spot, I would say Ben Franklin. I mean, say Nicholas fe- Tesla because he was just like uh, wicked that's good, crazy. That's a good one. That's probably my dad's. <laughs> my dad has like Nicholas Te- Nikola Tesla shirts. Oh, dude, that's like, awesome. He's crazy about it. Yeah. So um, let's stop talking about that, shall we? Sure. You good? Okay. Uh, catchphrase today is plant the seeds early and save the trees because money really does grow on trees because trees create paper and that's where money is made. So that was sent in to us by at Giro1369. Thank you so much, Giro. G-E-R-O, that is. And you can send in your catchphrases via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Money Matters Man. And today, we have a guest on the show. His name is John Corcoran, and he has a, uh, a website called Smart Business Revolution. He has a podcast. He is a networking machine. But he also paid off like a crazy amount of debt in a record amount of time. And I just want to say hello to John, and welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. And, and I didn't know that I'd have to brush up on my American Revolutionary War history to come on <laughs> a personal finance uh, podcast. I wish you'd uh, let me know about that. We didn't even but, know uh, before we started. So yeah, who knows what direction we're going to go in? Yeah. But I'm happy. Let's talk some Ben Franklin or whatever. Yeah, I mean, do you have a famous historical figure that you like? Actually, funny story is I'm actually related to Paul Revere, so I guess I have to say Paul Revere. Oh, you definitely have to say Dude, Paul Revere. Dude, I totally did a shadow box on Paul Revere in like fourth grade. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Remember shadow boxes? <laughs> like diagrams? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't awesome. Think, yeah. Well, I guess I, I deserve a royalty or something from your shadow box. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What, what are you drinking, John? 
<laughs> so I'm drinking, uh, fitting since I'm in San Francisco, I'm drinking an Anchor Steam, which Ooh. is made in San Francisco. Uh, but we were talking earlier about different beers. I wish I had a Pliny the Elder or mm. Pliny the Younger with me. Those are great beers. I'm a big fan of Lagunitas, which is from Petaluma, which is only about 20 miles north of me from here. Um, I basically like any any kind of hoppy IPA beer. Yeah. Do you know why they call it Anchor Steam? Because I actually do. Uh, isn't it the means of making it? It's like a steam beer or something? No, that's what people think, but Mm. it's actually because they had these, uh, cooling ships. They're called cool ships that they would place the beer on top of the building, right? So they would, Mm -hmm. uh, they would have these long, like, uh, like bathtubs, basically. They would pour the hot wort into these bathtubs to let it cool down and the steam would rise from the top of the building and and that's how they got the name Anchor Steam. Well, considering how many uh, seagulls there are in San Francisco, that sounds really sanitary. Oh, yes. Well, they weren't very sanitary uh, back in the day. So no, I don't beers, think so. Beers soured quite quickly, and they would just like, <laughs> they would add, they would get fresh beer and mix it in with the old beer so that it would, you know, taste better. That sounds lovely. That's I don't a, know if I'm going to finish this beer. <laughs> no, they don't do that store. anymore, but uh, <laughs> it is still a technique. It is still uh, used. People do still use cool rooms and cool ships uh, because they want, they're actually looking to introduce those. You know, microbes and and yeast that are in the air into the beer to kind of spoil it. They're like they're looking to spoil the beer, and that's how you get sour beers. So it oh, is a cool. thing. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah. I learned something new. Learn something. You always learn something on this show. But we, <laughs> so Not I, always useful. Yeah. <laughs> I want to learn about you, John. I you know uh, we it was funny because we know we know I know John. We he were in Fizzle together and uh, known him for a while. We just actually recently talked on the phone and. It was funny because I had asked Laura uh, to find someone who paid off a massive amount of debt in a very short amount of time, and she found an article that John wrote on Get Rich Slowly, contacted him and said, you know, will you be on the show? He's like, yeah, we know you. So it was like this kind (laughs) of like- It was like three days later. Yeah, it was three days later. It's such a small world, such a a small World Wide Web. Uh, So I want you to kind of go into this because uh, it was like, well, how much was the debt that you had to start to begin with? Because it's an, it's crazy. Um, yeah. So l- let me preface it by saying that some of it was secured and some of it was unsecured because um, so I wrote this article on Get Rich Slowly and it was about how I paid off six hundred and ten thousand dollars in debt. But I had a total of about seven fifty five. Seven fifty five wow. was the total number when I added it all up a couple of years ago. Uh, four years ago is when I added it all up. Now, what was that like? What consisted of that? What was it? So I had a rental property, I had a condo I was living in, I had a bunch of equity lines here and there, I had uh, school debt, um, the, interestingly no credit card debt or very little credit card debt. Really? Uh, so this loans. is all loans. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, I think that around that time period, you know, between about 2006 and 2010, um, a lot of people used equity lines like credit cards where mm-hmm. they just took the money out and then was able to spend it on whatever. And I was no exception. Like my wife and I took a, had an equity line of about $100,000. Uh, first, an equity line on an investment property, then an equity on a condo. And we used it for a variety of different things. For living expenses, when I was in law school, for a kitchen remodel, for um, you know our wedding and our honeymoon, you know, it just kind of got shifted around for various different things, and pretty soon it was a huge number. Yeah, were you were you bad with money or at the time? 
I don't know if I was bad with money. I'm not definitely not the greatest with money with managing money. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we were we had about a three year period. Well, I was in law school for three years, and my wife was in law school a year before that, and we overlapped for a year, which was the year we got married. Right. So <laughs> we were both in grad school and got married in one year. So there wasn't much income coming in, and uh, and we had a rental property. So it was just a variety of different things that led to our, um, you know, our debt really increasing. And, you know, it was an investment in our future, most of it. Um, so it worked out okay, but um, it certainly was a huge number. You had this equity line of credit, but you guys were still in school. So how, how did you have equity or money, I guess, before you graduate? I'm guessing you had a job and then went to law school later in life. Yes, I did. So I was out of uh, college for about six years and, and worked and, and had a career working in politics for a number of years and uh, and then went back to law school. So it was a, it was a couple of years. And, you know, back then it was like if you could breathe on a piece of paper, they'd give you an equity line for 100K. <laughs> right, right. Right. It was ridiculous. Like, and I, I mean, I, I'm a lawyer, so I had a, I had a lot of clients who came meet to you know came to meet with me we were having problems for a couple of years there and it was ridiculous the people that had you know amazing amounts of credit equity lines that were granted to them and I was no exception and um so we just you know they just it, I had gotten the equity lines before I went to law school so if I'd gone to law school and I, I didn't have an income I wouldn't qualified for the equity lines at least they were discriminating about that but I'd gotten the equity lines and then Somewhere around you know oh seven or oh eight, I want to say, um, was around the time that most of the banks froze a lot of the equity lines. Yeah, great year. Yeah, great time. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love, I love that you said if you can breathe on a piece of paper, they'll give you a loan, and that's just I'm gonna remember that because I need to use that. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, yeah. what was the turning point? When did you? When did you? Was it when you had when you graduated law school? You were like, uh. Shit, we have a lot of debt. We got to get rid of this. Yeah, I mean, it was like we were motivated to pay it off, but we didn't really have the income. So I also graduated from law school in 2007. Great time to, you know, be leaving Perfect. with $129,000 in law school debt and looking for a job. Yeah. As the, you know, global economy was crumbling. So I ended up working a variety of different jobs with small firms that didn't pay a whole heck of a lot of money. So we didn't really have the resources to pay down. Uh, my debt. And it really wasn't until I started my own firm, I went to go work for myself, started my own business, that I started having more money in order to pay off these debts. And then, as I mentioned, it was it was also a combination of timing the, the, the real estate markets too, and, and kind of strange timing in terms of our personal situation. So we, we had the investment property and we had the condo, and eventually we sold both of them in order. What actually happened was in 2000, beginning of 2010, we found out we were pregnant with our first child, um, our son Mason. And like two months after that, we found out that our tenants in the rental property were moving out. So we were kind of faced with a critical decision then. Do we continue to rent it out and hope that the real estate market improves? Or do we uh, sell it right away, even though the market was pretty low at that point and there were a lot of short sales? Yeah. And so we decided to sell it, and if we sold it now, it'd probably be worth a hundred k more, you know, but the decision I think was right for us at the time because we had a kid on the way, we didn't have the attention to focus on it. I was working at a firm that was actually an hour and fifteen minute one way driving commute from wow. house at the time, and so it and and the 
the uh, the property actually wasn't wasn't even covering itself. It was a little underwater uh, in terms of the amount of rent that it was bringing in. So I'm glad that we made the decision to sell it then. Um, it, but it was it was definitely a challenging decision. Yeah, and that was a short sale or just full out? No, it wasn't. It wasn't a short sale. We actually made a little bit on it, not really? a lot. Yeah. Um, and in what that, year is this? Two thousand ten. Two thousand ten, and I think that was part of the reason that we sold it what, quickly was because um, there weren't because all it was surrounded by short sales, and we were the only non-short sales. So other people were attracted to selling it because short sales were taking a long time at that time, sure, it was taking yeah. like three or four months to go through. So anyone who wanted to buy a property, they're like, "Hey, a non-short sale, we could we could be done with this in thirty days." Mm-hmm. And then, so that was a obviously a big chunk, right, of your debt. Just gone. That was yeah. That was um, I'm trying to remember. It was it was like a 200 and we sold it for around 200. I want to say. Wow. But so, you still have a lot left. So how'd you get rid of the rest? What was the next one? I didn't get rid. So I still have a lot of the law school debt. Left, okay. So I didn't pay off all of it. Um, uh, then the rest. So then we did that, and then a couple of years later, our son was 18 months, and we were in a two-bedroom condo, and it was like you know, like barely a thousand square feet, and we needed more space. And so, um, kind of the same thing. We were like, do we hold on to this? Is like in 2011, I want to say, mm-hmm. and the market, real estate market, was just kind of starting to improve, but it hadn't improved yet. And we were trying to decide whether we should sell our condo or not. And we did decide to sell it then. And so that both of those two sales actually covered a lot of the equity lines and the the secured debt. So that was a big chunk of it. And then also, like, my income from my new business helped pay off some of the various different debt, like um, some of the law school debt and uh, car loan that we had and things like that. So uh, you at the time, you only had two, you had two properties, right? Yes. Okay, and you sold the one you were living in. Yes. So then so we went you... from we went from being landlords to being tenants again. So you actually so uh, after you sold the two places, and and you I guess you were able to afford those before college. So you had that six that six year gap, right? Yes. So that's, that's where right. you that's yeah. where you bought those. those I bought places. them both before law school. Got it. So uh, you're in law school. You sell both places, which obviously is, I'm sure after. is a huge chunk of your debt. Yeah. Gone after after law school, we we sold both of them a couple of years after law. And school. then you rent it. Uh, and then oh, and then, and then we rent. Yeah, we rent now. You do rent and, now. Uh, and so it, you know, it was the right decision for us because um, at the time it was it was very difficult to make that what we felt like was a step backwards, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know the, okay. the American dream, yeah. the American dream is to you know become a homeowner, you know, own property property owner. Yep. And and to then to buy property and rent it out, and um, which is what we had done, but then sometimes you know life takes a few you know turns, and we had a kid, and we we could afford to own property in the we we also live in a very expensive town in San Francisco, uh, right outside of San Francisco, which sure. has good schools, so mm-hmm. we want to stay, you want to stay in it, um, but we you know we we were stuck with the decision of do we continue owning property but that's too small for us or do we sell it and and you know rent for a couple of years and then when the time is right buy again when we can um, and so the one of the real struggles that we had with our situation is that we were we didn't fit into a box 
like I wrote in the Get Rich Slowly article about how we went to see a financial advisor and the traditional, when you have uh, this amount of debt or any debt, the first advice they give you is pay off the highest interest debt first, right? Pay off the credit card debt. We didn't have any credit card debt and all the interest was like under 4%. It was all pretty low. Um, And so it was like, okay, then which debt do we pay off first? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and so it, there wasn't any conventional advice, and we struggled with it for a couple of years because we weren't sure what to do. And um, so it, it, it's difficult sometimes when you fall into a, a bucket like that. John, what prompted the the need to pay off all the debt? Like, were you, were you at a point where like you were starting to sink deeper underwater? You know, like you said, your investment property wasn't profitable, and like, what what prompted this whole thing? Well, we, I, I think if we'd held on to them for a couple of years longer, we probably could have, we, the real estate market ended up turning around, we probably would have sold them for a profit. So mm. in retrospect, who knows what the right decision is. But at the time, there was, when we sold the rental property, there was a baby on the way. Um, right. And it was taking our attention. You know, it, it, we, mm. we had tenants who were about to move out and we would have had to find new tenants. And every time you have new tenants, you got to fix it up. So we would have had to invest money to 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 fix it up, um, and we just decided, you know, we might as well invest that money and then sell it and simplify our life. That was a big, you know, theme because it was, it was just it, it, it our lives had gotten more uh, complicated. And when you have something as significant as a new child coming along, sometimes it's important to remove things so that you can focus. And then, and ultimately, I ended up, you know. A couple of years later, I ended up starting my own business, and I'm glad that I didn't have the distraction of managing a rental property. So that was a big part of the decision. And then as far as selling our, our main property, the condo that we were living in, that was primar- primarily had to do with um, uh, the uh, having a, an 18-month-old. It was a second-story condo. So he was about reaching the point where he would like go out on the deck and like, you know, climb Mm. over the deck rail, you know, Mm. and we had a tiny, you know, it was a very small place with one with two bedrooms. So So, it was was a a size size definitely had something to do with it. Selling the places did that cover like all of your debt and then you were good. Was there a a, I I know you sold your school debt, but beyond that, did the the equity lines of credit or whatever else you had? What was there still more? And like, how did you handle that? It covered just about everything. Yeah, I mean the um, both of the sales fortunately covered enough of the like we hadn't run up the equity line so high that we had to do short sales in either case. So both in both cases we just barely cleared the first mortgage and the equity line, and the equity lines were essentially comprised of a combination of living expenses, law school debt, uh, a kitchen remodel, and wedding and honeymoon debt. So that covered it. Yeah, it pretty much did. And I mean, I still have some remaining law school debt, but again, that's like super low. So it's, uh, you know, it wouldn't really, I don't think it would be smart to pay it down at this point. So would you go back to law school if you could do it again? Oh man, that's a tough decision. I, um, I love what I'm doing now. I have some great clients and um, being a lawyer, going to law school definitely teaches you how to tackle any challenge in this world. You know, the, the, what, you're, what you learn in law school is that you don't actually know all the answers to everything, but you know that you can figure it out. And so I love that about having gone to law school. The debt is definitely, you know, it's definitely significant and it limits, it limits your options. I wish I, I didn't have the, the debt, 
but I'm I'm glad that I went because I you know it makes you more um, intelligent. It makes you more um, analytical. Um, and e- even though I engage in a lot of entrepreneurial pursuits that don't necessarily require a law degree, um, I think the having gone to law school, having studied how to how to solve problems, even if you don't know the answer right away, um, has given me the courage to pursue some of those entrepreneurial pursuits. And where are you? Where are you right now, as far as your debt? So um, we have still. Um, the law school debt and a little bit of my wife's uh, grad school debt, which is like one percent. Hers is even lower. My law school debt is like four percent, and I think we probably have about a hundred, hundred and five thousand left of that. And uh, so you you still have the law firm, so you're working to pay that off. Mm-hmm. And and the cars are paid off. Cars are paid off. Right. So you so and you're renting. So yes. all you have right now, as far as debt, is your student loans. Yes. Cool. And I got, so one of the things that I wanted to uh, ask you were um, why, what, you know, you said you were in politics between, uh, I guess, graduating college and going to law school, right? Right. So were you making like really decent money to, to, <laughs> to say that, oh, well, let's buy two houses? So I started in the Clinton White House in 1999, and I think my beginning salary was $24,000 a year. So no, that isn't the case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My dad came to visit that fall. I started like in June. Uh uh, He came to visit in the fall like in November, and it was getting really cold, and I didn't have like a winter coat yet, and he bought me a winter coat. So I I didn't have like money for that. So so you you didn't have money for these houses then? I didn't buy them then. I bought them later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I So then, actually, I went from there. I went from Washington, D.C. to Sacramento, became a speechwriter for the governor of California, and my income, like, doubled. You mean, and you mean Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, no, no. I actually worked for the guy who was recalled by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was prior to that. So um, uh, I uh, was... I was um, um, the the price of living in Washington D.C. is much higher than Sacramento. Yeah, I remember doing a calculator at the time and figuring out that even if I'd kept, stayed at the same income, it would have been like a like a huge boost in pay just moving from Washington D.C. to right. Sacramento uh, because the cost of living is so much lower. So um, my income like basically doubled at that time, and then. I worked in the governor's office, and then uh, the recall came along, and I worked in another job for about a year before going to law school. And what made you go to law school? Like, what was the what was the decision there? Honestly, the, mm-hmm. what inspired me was so I worked in politics, and I worked with a lot of amazing, intelligent, uh, creative individuals, many of whom had been to law school or were lawyers at some point in their career, mm-hmm. and literally, we'd be in meetings. And we'd be arguing over what direction to take or a communication strategy or something like that. And it was the lawyers that I tend to, tended to lose arguments to. And so I was like, you know what? Maybe I should go to law school. And I wouldn't always lose arguments to these guys. Ah. So that, that was kind of the origin of it. I didn't have any lawyers in my family, per se, like distant relatives maybe. But, um, you know, that was a big part of it and just kind of being being inspired by a couple of the stories that are out there um, in popular culture, like Aaron Brockovich and, you know, the <laughs> idea of, you know, being able to use a law degree for good kind of inspired me as well. And John Cochran. 
Johnny Cochran. Johnny yeah. Cochran. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> very, sim- very similar name. I'm sure you get that a lot. I, I do. I do. I Being say a he's lawyer. A, I say he's a distant relative. Okay, on, a, really? on, a, on a lawyer side note, what what about the lottery makes you like debate better? Is it just because you have to read all these like books about law? I mean, uh, what is it? Um, it's just having so, the knowledge, right? It's it's not the substantive knowledge. It's just the way of uh, breaking down arguments. You know, sometimes, for example, you know, you'll get an argument. Sometimes people will make an argument uh, to support their point that might apply to their point, but they don't realize that it also supports your point as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's it helps you to see arguments from every side rather than one sided. We we tend to go through life. Uh, seeing things through rose-colored glasses and, and trying to see things um, that support our vision or support our uh, beliefs. And law school teaches you to always see both sides because in order to uh, rebut your opponent's arguments, you need to understand their arguments as well as they do. That's and so, yeah. And, and yeah, and and ultimately, um, you know, that's what you do in in the law is you're you're um, trying to get to the truth which often can be quite murky, but um, you're debating points with people, going back and forth, understanding their arguments. It, you know, the practicing law is about dealing in grays, not in black and white. And so often there are arguments on both sides and you need to understand both sides. So you, right now, um, you're, you, you work at a law firm, your own law firm. Yes. And you also have smartbusinessrevolution.com. That's right. Those are two separate things. Yes. Now, I want to know if your law degree or you practicing law paved the way for smart business revolution, which you fo- you tend to focus on the word that I had mentioned in the beginning of the episode, how I described you, and I know you don't like the word, and neither do I, quite frankly, but a networking machine. Right. Right? So I don't like the word networking either. I think it's just making friends. Right. Right? So right. I, I think- I'm uh, searching for a better word, by the way. I just haven't found one yet. You just haven't found one yet. You yeah. should look in the law, law books. There might be something I there. I should. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of words that no one understands and you can, <laughs> right. you can turn into that. I, I should use a word in Latin. There you go. Perfect. Understand. Yeah. So uh, I, I like where was the transition from I'm a lawyer, I'm making good money to oh, I want to be a networking guy. Like I want to talk about that. <laughs> That's a great question. You guys are asking great questions, by the way. These oh. are questions that I haven't uh, been asked on other podcasts. So it's fun to talk about them. Um for me personally, I've always been a writer. So I was a writer in the Clinton White House. I was a speechwriter for the Governor of California. I've been. I remember when I was ten years old saying I wanted to be a writer. So I've always been a writer. So I've always pursued writing, and I've always enjoyed that. And at some point along the way, actually, I, I started writing for the web back in like nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety seven. So I've always there was web back then. Yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> I know. So you know. It was it was a very primitive version. It was actually with pencil and paper. It was really really primitive. It was snail mail. Yeah, so so I I've, I've been writing for the web forever, and and then eventually transitioned over to blogging, and uh, you know I I didn't immediately stumble upon writing about how to build relationships and how to use that to support your income. That took a while, and I've actually written guest posts about the transition to get to that point. Mm-hmm. But it it got to the point where you have to follow what other people say you're good at, uh, and oftentimes, and I I think oftentimes we pursue things that we are challenged by. 
everyone does this. We pursue things that we're challenged by rather than the thing that other people really want from us or that we're really good at. And so I was not, I did the same thing with, with writing for the web. And eventually it, w it was enough of my friends and colleagues and people saying like, how do you develop relationships like that? Or how do you get to know people like that? And I look back on my career and I realized that I really built relationships to get myself a job as a 23-year-old as a writer in the Clinton White House. I, and then I built relationships in order to get a job as a speechwriter to the governor of California. And then I shifted from... I actually worked in the entertainment industry before I went to politics. I actually worked for... Arnold Steven Schwarzenegger? Spielberg's, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I actually worked for uh, DreamWorks, Steven Spielberg's DreamWorks. and. Oh. and in uh, Los Angeles, so I'd worked in Hollywood, and then uh, and then after I graduated from law school, I worked in Silicon Valley for a little while. Did now you not? Today, what did you not do? Let's let's do the things you haven't done, <laughs> and then yet. maybe we can get. I have to this. not been a ship captain. captain there you go, uh, circumnavigating the globe yet, but there's still time. <laughs> yet, uh, yeah. So I mean, I I built networks and relationships in all these different industries and it's i started putting putting it all together and realizing that you know this is uh, some way that i could provide value to people yeah. and i started writing about it not just on my my site but elsewhere and then that's when things really started taking off and people started really liking it and so you believe it's all about who you know I absolutely do. And I'm not the only one. I mean, it, this, you know, if you look at like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, or if you look at today, you know, amazing icons of entrepreneurship like Sir Richard Branson has said that, uh, you know, he credits relationships as being a big part of his success. And um, even you look at someone like Steve Jobs, everyone likes to hold out Steve Jobs as like this example of the titan of industry who came, you know, like was sitting in his garage coming up with different ideas. But I can actually make a really compelling argument that relationships had a lot to do with Apple's success because when he was in high school, first of all, he grew up in Silicon Valley. So he was making friends with other people in Silicon Valley and he built relationships. There was a, an HP engineer who lived a couple of uh, uh, blocks away from him who he met and befriended and that uh, individual helped get him one of his early internships uh, in the tech industry introduced him to it and then he made he built relationships with other individuals um, in computer hobby clubs and he built relationships with electronic store owners who became early buyers of early Apple computers and the uh, people who were computer hobbyists who were in the computer clubs became early employees and they helped him pack early Apple products and so really like when you take any entrepreneur any business owner relationships are so critically important and uh, you know i i find that in my career and that other people's career that oftentimes we don't put as much effort and energy into cultivating those relationships so my goal with smart business revolution is um, to help people with that mission and by the way the the similarity between uh, my law firm and Smart Business Revolution is that in both cases, I'm talking to the same audience. It's small business owners and entrepreneurs. Mm. In one case, I'm helping them with legal issues. In the other case, I'm helping them to cultivate relationships in order to grow their revenues. So, John, I want to have Mark Cuban on this podcast. How, do I, how do I network my way to Mark Cuban coming on this podcast? Do you want his phone number? You, you have, have his phone number? No, of course not. <laughs> oh, <kidding>? well. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> do I, do I, I would actually prefer, I mean, is that the best way? Like if I have his phone number, is that like almost a shoe-in? If I have his email address, am I then a chump? I, I mean, no. I mean, because personally, if you I would prefer email. If, if you randomly had his phone number and you called him up, what kind of reaction do you think you'd get? 
He's going to uh, be like, fuck hello? you. Why'd you call me? Uh, you know, the FBI is going to be. I'm sure he wouldn't here. even answer the phone. He'd probably be a little more polite than that. But I, I don't know. So, I mean, yeah, but well, he wouldn't be happy. Yeah, I mean, it's good to have ambition like that. And I'd, I'd like to interview Mark Cuban as well. I haven't actually tried. But, um, you know, I think that there's a number of ways you can go about it. Um, he, he He's active on some social media. Isn't he active on, on Twitter and I'm I sure because of Shark Tank. I, I personally, I don't want to interview the guy, but he's yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have a difference so you, there. So, for starters, you two, you two need to work that out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, we, no, we've been at, doing we, counseling and therapy. Here. Yeah. Do, no. Do, do. Yeah, we've been asked by uh, a few fans and listeners that uh, they want we want to we want to interview him or like Richard Branson. I think for me is. Sure. You know, yeah. people like that who are, you know, I, I, they're actually. I like how Cuban is more as like ruthless, though. I, I, I yeah. Wanna... Well, Richard Branson's a funny example because I just interviewed another podcaster. Actually, or just sorry, I just spoke to another another podcaster this week because I saw that Richard Branson was coming over uh, across the Atlantic for an event. And uh, I suggested, you know, you could go to that event and, you know, that's one way that you can build a relationship with someone is you can buy your way into something that can be very expensive. Or another alternative was if you don't want to spend a lot of money to go to some event, you could, um, you know, (laughs) you could uh, try and get in as a media person to some event and, you know, get an interview with him there. That's Mm. another way to do it as well. Mm. Um, You know, uh, Joe Polish, who's the host, uh, he's a marketing whiz and he's got a couple of podcasts. He tells a story about meeting Richard Branson for the first time. And he, he actually did write a big check to come to an event that he was at, but ended up, but if you put that issue aside, but writing a big check, when he met him, he was just sincere, and he actually tried to help Richard Branson. So he actually gave him some marketing advice. And what I love about that is oftentimes we put someone like a Richard Branson up on a pedestal, and we think, well, he's got hundreds of people working for him. He's got some of the brightest minds working for him. He doesn't need anything. There's nothing that I can offer to him. And that's not always true. First of all, we can we often have insight or information that could be helpful to someone like that or a Mark Cuban. And secondly, even if it's not related to our vocation, so even if it's not we're, give, we're a marketing person and we're giving marketing advice to them, there's always something personal that you can, you can give to that person. So like you can find out that it turns out that, uh, I don't know, maybe Mark Cuban's a crazy about Puerto Rican food. And you, know, you can give him advice about like a great new Puerto Rican restaurant mm-hmm. in Dallas that he doesn't know about, and he'd be grateful for that. So that would be a way that you could build a relationship with someone who's actually very successful um, just by giving them a, a little tip like that. You know, I it's funny. I For me, that, that connection that I have with people is through music. Mm-hmm. So uh, because I write music and perform, and I also know a lot about it, and uh, that's one of those things that I could talk to somebody and they say, oh, you know, I do music too. Or, oh, have you heard of this band or heard this, you know, whatever. And that's usually a good connection for me. The other one is beer, actually. Yeah. You know? I talk with beer. Yeah, absolutely. It's I a lo- great – yeah, or sports. Yep. Oh, that's not me. No. Okay. No. But, I mean, you know, whatever it is you have in common, you've got to find that commonality. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know the, the phrase, like, keep it simple, stupid? I refer to the phrase – Keep it personal, stupid. You know, when you're talking with someone who's very successful, keep it personal. Talk about something personal. Find out what the commonality is between the two of them, between the two of you that you can talk about and that you both have in common. I'll tell just a quick story about working at the White House. So back, uh, I don't know if they still do this anymore, but they had the historic radio address. And um, the way they used to do it is 
during the Clinton administration, um, the people who worked there and also VIPs like governors and members of Congress could put in a request to come down and watch the president record the historic radio address in the Oval Office. And basically what it works is you'd, you'd come down with about 150 of other, other VIPs and you watch him record it and then he'd do a photo line, take pictures really quick and it'd be over really fast. So we did that around the end of when I was leaving the administration. My family came down, and we'd gotten a tip that at the time he was collecting, building up his DVD collection of old Western movies because he'd just gotten a DVD player. So we went and we bought a couple of old Westerns, black and white Westerns, and wrapped them in a bow, and we ended up coming down, and we watched him record it, and then uh, all these VIPs are moving along, and we come up and we hand over the Westerns, and we ended up having like a five- to ten-minute conversation with the president, the leader of the free world, standing there in the center of the Oval Office, the you know, seat of power, uh, the man who has the finger on his finger on the button, so to speak. Yeah. And and you know all these people, these VIPs behind us are wondering why are these people getting this extra time with him? And my dad actually used to be a film critic, so we ended. Huh. We were just talking about old Western movies. We were just having the most normal human conversation as you could have about old Western movies and what movies we liked. And so the reason I tell that story frequently is because if I can have a normal human conversation with the leader of the free world in the heart of power like that, then you can have a normal human conversation about whatever it is you have in common with Mark Cuban or Sir Richard Branson or Sir Richard, you know, or Sir Mix-a-Lot for, for <laughs> all yeah. that matters, you know, whoever it is. <laughs> now that's a guy I'd love to interview. Yeah, mm. there you go. See, and that's the thing. I know that if, if Mark Cuban or Richard Branson or, or even Warren Buffett or Elizabeth Warren, these are people that we want on the show, I know that I can – when if they're here and I can talk to them, I can relate in some way, shape, or form. The real big problem is getting the face-to-face, -face, right? So I, it's not so much being there, being there and talking to them. It's the how do you get there in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, and that's really like that, – that's what I struggle with. I mean – we were just down in, in FinCon, and there was a lot of people that we've interviewed on the show before that we you know we got to talk to over you know over Skype but not in person, and people that we haven't talked to, and that was just really easy because you're there, you have no you know you're there. So is it yeah. really just about being there? I mean, for lack of a better like, so broad in general, but I mean, well, there's a significant advantage to that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you for example, there are members of Congress, there are senators that. If you go down to Capitol Hill and you hang out in the hallway for long enough, you will run into very famous senators, mm -hmm. you know, and you might even have an opportunity to talk to them a little bit. So proximity it definitely makes a big, uh, big difference and, and context as well. You know, like, for example, um, if you want to, uh, you know, meet someone like a president, you're probably better off meeting them outside of Washington, D.C., because in Washington, D.C., they have a lot of stuff to do. And yeah. if they're outside of Washington, D.C., for whatever reason, they're probably spending more time meeting people and they're willing to linger a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but another thing I would do is tell everyone about it. You know, if your goal is to interview Warren Buffett, then be clear about it. But I'll say that you guys are halfway there by the fact that you have a podcast. See, because yeah. actually having that kind of vehicle is a great tool for actually meeting someone and, and starting to develop a relationship. Um, so that's that's a great start. See, my big get for me, like to, to say that, oh, okay, I've I've done well, is the is Elizabeth Warren. I would love to interview Elizabeth Warren and. Yeah. 
I've made it very clear to people around me that that's my white whale, you know, for, uh, you know, to, to give a, a Moby Dick reference. Uh, and the one, like my dad will send me stuff on Facebook. Like, did you know that, you know, she's having a contest to see, you know, if you'd send her something, she'll have lunch with you. And I go, well, I don't want to spend money and donate to her campaign. I just want to interview her. And I've called her office. And of course, it's not as easy as, you know, getting her on the phone. But as to ask a selfish question, since you are were in politics, how do you think we could get Elizabeth Warren? Um, what would be your approach if you were us? You know, with someone like that, I would probably I would I would do kind of a belt and suspenders approach. I would start. Uh, I would I would approach both the the aides that work for her and try and build relationships with them. And I would try and approach the individual, try and uh, approach, Elizabeth, approach Elizabeth Warren as well. Um, with the staff, there might be some opportunity where you could, um, you know, use your platform that you're building now uh, in order to um, help them out somehow. You know, if they have something that they're trying to get promotion, some, some cause that she's working on, that you could, you know, use the megaphone that you're building um, with the podcast in order to promote it. And it doesn't need to be big, you know, like uh, uh, I guarantee you some people will be listening to this and they'll say, well, I want to meet so-and-so, mm-hmm. but I don't have a big podcast. And, and so therefore I, I, this advice doesn't relate to me. Well, one of the simplest piece of advice I give people is like, for example, if you have a business book author or any kind of book author that you want to meet, almost every laptop these days comes with a, with a, a, a camera built in. Literally open up the laptop, look directly into the laptop, hold up the book and do like a three minute review of why you like that book and then send an email to that person. And I've done this multiple times and it's a great way to start building a relationship. So if Elizabeth Warren has a new book coming out, do that and send it to her people Mm -hmm. or better yet, have a promotion through your podcast to so people can win copies of her new book. You know, whatever it is that they're working on, you'd be surprised. Even if someone is incredibly successful, there's still something else that they're probably working on, like a book they're trying to promote or a business they're trying to promote that they could use help with. I like that. Yeah. Simple. It is, but a lot of people don't do it. Yeah. You know? That's the hardest part, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, what, what people end up doing is they end up, trying to get something from the person. Um, and, right. we, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, Listen Money Matters is not at the point where it's prominent enough that it's a huge get for her. Mm-hmm. You know, she wants to get her message out, but it's not prominent enough that, you know, she can go in 60 minutes, right? Yeah, it's so, not Daily Show or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's not quite at that level yet. But on the other hand, you know, if she's trying to promote something like a new book, then there, that that might be an opportunity there. There might be an opportunity there. I'll have to wait for her to write her next book because she just yep. released one, <laughs> like maybe <laughs> yes. like uh, six months ago. But well, maybe uh, it's not too late on that book. No. The other thing you can do is um, define the scope of the interview as well. Limit it to just that thing. Yeah. And and there might be something you know rather than approaching Mark Cuban and saying we want to interview about what it takes to be a good entrepreneur, which is an interview he's done a thousand times before. Sure. Right. Uh huh. You know, maybe he has a cause that's dear to his heart. 
right, some some charity or something like that and say, we want to interview you just about this charity. You have a much better chance of doing that, of getting that one. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. I didn't yeah. think of that one, actually. Andrew, write we'll that get, down. We'll get her on. Yeah. Done. Cool. <laughs> Well, uh, John, I want to thank you for being on the show. I really do appreciate it, and I I appreciate the end where you uh, answered my selfish question because sometimes I have to get selfish. Hey, man, that's what I'm here for, and it's a pleasure. Really, really happy being here. Yeah, and I mean, congratulations on on everything. I mean, uh, Smart Business Revolution is doing well, right? It is, and the, yeah. and the law firm's doing well, and and you're paying off your debts. Uh, I, I mean, are you are you aggressively paying off that that last uh, student loan? I wouldn't say we're aggressively paying it off because we have other things that we want to save up for. And mm-hmm. we just had our second child. So those there you things go. get very expensive very quickly. <laughs> um, but it, it, we are paying it off regularly. So, you know, at some point we'll probably um, cut down a bigger chunk of it. But, you know, we're working on it one, one day at a time. Cool. And uh, so what's going on at Smart Business Revolution? So Smart Business Revolution, actually, I had some great uh, guest posts recently had – um, one from a, a guy who's a director in Hollywood. He's worked on the West Wing and Glee, and and he did a guest post about what it takes to build relationships in was Hollywood. It, was it Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> he keeps coming up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, no, I have not had a guest post from Arnold Schwarzenegger soon, yet. So though, soon, At some point, yeah. Uh, so that one and, and uh, another novelist who contributed a guest post, so that's good. I write for Art of Manliness. I've got a new post uh, up there today, which is about um, – how to recover from a bad first impression. And so I get a lot of readers who come over to me from there. I also just started writing for Forbes. Uh, Basically, anywhere that will let me write, I will write. So Cool, yeah. I mean, just give us uh, a high-authority link on Forbes.com. That's all we ask. (laughs) There you go. And, you know, actually, I I remembered. um, So if any of your listeners want to get a copy of my free ebook, which is called How to Build Relationships uh, with Influencers, Even If You Hate Networking, um, and uh, they can go to smartbusinessrevolution.com slash money matters and, and grab it there. All right, perfect. And are you on social media? I am. I'm uh, I'm kind of a Twitter guy. Yeah. I'm definitely active on Twitter, so there's lots of uh, fizzlers, as you know, so mm-hmm. at John Corcoran there. Cool, perfect. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, you guys. And if you guys uh, have questions uh, for John or for us or whatever you guys have, uh, you can email us at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. And if you like the show, really want you to got, I want you to subscribe to the podcast because it's super important that uh, you can get our episodes downloaded to your phone or your tablet or your phablet or whatever you're listening to our <laughs> podcast on every single day. And if you leave a review, and we hope that you do, uh, send us an email to listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. We will send you some free stuff, including our Mastering Mint book, um, so you can learn how to master mint. Dot com and I'm going to read a quick review, just a little little quick one uh, from Ant five two one six six six. It may be demonic. I don't I don't know. Could be just an address. Uh, but <laughs> the personal finance dumbed down five stars from the United States. I love this podcast. They dumb personal finance down so everyone can understand it. Not only is this show very informative, but they are hilarious. Unlike Susie Orman. I hate Susie Orman. <laughs> Keep up the good work, guys. Yes. That was I, not they, my... They nailed it. They nailed their it. words. Their words. Uh, so thank you so much, and <laughs> 521666. Uh, and we will keep up the good work. And if you want, visit our website. It's listenmoneymatters.com. And we have our toolbox, which is listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox, 
where we have all of the stuff uh, like books that we recommend and products that we recommend and websites that we recommend and pretty much everything that we recommend and have recommended on the show. So, and of course, uh, so it was smartbusinessrevolution.com slash money matters. That's right. And that's where you can get uh, a free download of John's book. And that's right. And it's all about networking. And I'm actually going to go download it because I want some networking tips. I want to just warn on the show for show. That's how we do it. So you're going to do it. I'm going to do it. I promise. Uh, thanks again for hanging out with us, guys. And we look forward to the next episode. So later. Andrew? Oh, later. Ha! Uh, ha! Please tell your friends about this show. <laughs>